ESPN Audio and SC Featured presents a 16-episode podcast, Pin Kings. It's the story of two All-American high school wrestlers, teammates, and friends who ultimately ended up on the opposite sides of the war on drugs. Pin Kings is for mature audiences. Welcome to Episode 13, Chasing the Chameleon. It took a long time to connect the dots, but through investigation, cooperating defendants throughout the year, we were able to put together his network between the Bahamas and Columbia. This is Jim Burke, a detective with the Boca Raton Police Department. So it's just basically investigative work and finding out who he's working for. And again, people would be arrested all this time frame, and we would go throughout the country to talk to these people. So I, I went for a while visited a lot of federal prisons throughout the country just talking to these individuals and seeing what they knew about Alex and seeing where he was. We were trying to locate him. He was a fugitive. Kevin and Alex were best friends. Champion wrestling buddies. The heydays of Miami. Alex DeCubis was clearly a kingpin. It's a, it's a tragic story. The less you know, the more you leave. I wanted to take out the biggest drug dealers. If they were catching him, he's going away for the rest of his life if they don't kill him when they try to capture him. Could you imagine if Kevin has to shoot Alex? He's a sworn federal agent for a drug enforcement agency. Evil goes to jail or evil ends up dead. Welcome to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. My name is Brett Forrest. I'm a senior writer at ESPN The Magazine. And I'm John Fish, a producer for ESPN Sports Center. Alex was the perfect smuggler. He could move freely in so many worlds. He was an all-American athlete. He knew the jock culture. He lived in Athens, Georgia. He could fit in in the Deep South. He was Cuban, so he had an entree into the Latin world. He was fluent in Spanish. This enabled him to communicate with his Colombian partners. He was a chameleon. And there was one agency that was designed to stop him. I'm talking about the DEA. Richard Nixon formed the DEA in 1973, combining several different agencies into one. But it wasn't really until Colombian cocaine started coming in to South Florida that the DEA really found its mission. With the massive federal buildup, the DEA became a serious threat to the cartel's business. Well, Kevin finds the DEA attractive. Here's Kevin Pedersen. Oh, I was highly impressed with the DEA because I saw them as, to me, in my mind at that time, as kind of paramilitary in a sense, a good blending of law enforcement with military, and I thought that's a perfect fit for me. And uh, I also like the fact that I heard they didn't wear a coat and tie too often except in court, so I, I kind of like that idea too. But a lot of action, and you know, if you want to fight the, the war on drugs, that's the place to be. That's the place to be. Single mission agency. I wanted to go right up to the top. I wanted to take out the biggest drug dealers I could possibly come across. The Colombians. The Colombians. Kevin's friends really understood the decisions that Kevin was taking. They knew him. This is Dom Gorey, a former wrestling teammate of Kevin's at Palmetto High School. When I found out Kevin was considering and then going into the DA, it didn't surprise me at all. It seemed to me like that was the career path that was right in line with his personality. How he looked at life with strict guidelines, strict requirements, focusing on, on something that was trying to make our country stronger and, and better. So it, it seemed to me like a, a perfect fit. 
Kevin had personal motivation to fight the war on drugs. I hated what I saw the results of drugs were in people. It affected my family. It affected my friends. I seen what my friends had become. Ruined them. Destroyed them. Took control of them. Especially those that are addicted to drugs. I mean, they're a slave to the drug. We see what that does to families. I experienced it straightforward. I wanted to fight that if I could. But I wanted to see what is it I should do in life. What's my purpose in life? He's trying to find this purpose in life, and the passion that he brings to it goes very deep. This is Mike Pedersen, Kevin's brother. Very easy for Kevin to associate and blame his wife's drug issues at a time and his life unraveling on the drug trade in Miami. You can easily make that association. He, he just wanted to go into a line of work where he knew he could be successful and make an impact very nice opportunity that has happened to be a profession that definitely made an impact on his ex-wife. Anybody that's had a family member affected by drugs, if you don't want to get that stuff off the streets, you know, you don't have heart. I mean, you don't have a soul. If you have a close family member affected by drugs and you don't want to fight the war on drugs and you don't want to get the bad guys that are bringing that stuff in and benefiting from it and making tons of money at it, and not giving a crap about what happens to people's families and their relatives, you're on the wrong side. Just so happened one of the guys on the wrong side was his wrestling teammate. A bad beginning for the career that Kevin was about to embark on. Scott Schraus wrestled a few years ahead of me, actually my brother's time period. But Scott Schraus, which I didn't know at the time, was like Alex DeCubis' right-hand man. When I first got hired by DEA, Scott had mentioned to me while we were coaching that he had had some problems uh, in regards to the law and some drug trafficking, but I didn't really know the details. I got a subpoena from Scott Schraus's attorney to appear at his sentencing hearing for drug trafficking to be a character witness for him, but it would put me in a precarious position because I, you know, I'm a brand new agent, a rookie, and what does it look like this brand new rookie is going over to the courthouse, and the first time I'm in the courthouse is not to prosecute somebody, but to be a character witness for a drug dealer. So of course I, I found out who had the case on him. They started laughing and said, oh, don't worry, he's cooperated totally with us, and we hope he gets a good sentencing, so just have fun and, and you know, enjoy your time on the witness stand for the first time, but maybe next time it'll actually be on our side when you do it. Not a good beginning for my career at the DEA. This is Keith Curtis, a DEA agent who worked the Alex DeCubis case. Kevin and I shared a laugh every now and then about Alex. I used to, uh, I used to tease Kevin, hey, you hearing from Alex? Have him uh, give me a call, turn himself in. He'd laugh. Kevin's a good guy. Kevin's a hardworking guy. You have to imagine he's in an uncomfortable position. I came to learn that Kevin and Alex were best friends. Champion wrestling buddies, the lightweight and the heavyweight. That impressed me. That impressed me a lot. Think for a minute, if you would, and put yourself in Kevin's position. These two guys, these two best friends, came to that proverbial fork in the road. One went left, one went right. At DEA, Kevin didn't fit into the Miami culture anymore. Miami wasn't his Miami of childhood of selling hot dogs at Burger King. It was a different town. Miami's a rough town. Lots happening. A lot of people that I used to be associated with growing up in high school and sports are involved in the drug trade. I couldn't walk into a bar without somebody walking up to me, patting me down, asking me if I was wearing a wire. Jokingly, but, you know, pretty serious. 
but at least at the DEA, Kevin felt really appreciated. This is Kevin's former boss, former DEA agent, David Tinsley. DEA Miami is the point of the spear for the drug wars, for especially during the 80s and 90s. So it was the point of the spear for DEA globally. Miami was a renowned office, enormous history. When you're, uh, DEA doesn't look so much at managers, we look at leaders. We look at who's here to lead people, guys that are willing to really get out and make a commitment. Kevin was one of those guys. You want someone that has the integrity to lead, that is honest and forthright, somebody that you can trust, whether he's got a car full of money or weapons, you know everything they pick up comes back. So those are inherent qualities we look at as a leader, and Kevin definitely was emblematic of that. He's a God family DEA guy. He's the red, white, and blue guy. If I could describe Kevin in a couple of sentences, I would say he's the type of guy you want your daughter to marry and the type of guy you don't want your son to have to fight. In 1990, Paul Pelletier, the federal prosecutor on this case, he indicted Julio Cesar Nasser David and Alex DeCubis, and he would go on to indict more than 200 people associated with the NERMA operations. We charged Alex with running a continuing criminal enterprise, which is, has more statutorily more of a bite for, for a prison sentence. This is Jim Burke of the Boca Raton PD. So we had to prove that he was the organizer, that he was involved in the importation and actually was an organizer, having so many people below him taking orders. With the new sentencing guidelines, Alex knows he's facing a 30-year stretch in prison. And Alex's buddy Scott, he was facing his own troubles. August 12, 1990, when the DEA stormed into my house, and then I was able to bail out. Then, in talking to Alex, I, I kind of explained in real matter-of-fact ways, because they made it clear this was like a get-out-of-jail-free thing. Give us Alex, and you're, you're good to go. I said, man, you, you're in a world of trouble here. He's like, yeah, I know, I know. I said, well, what are you going to do? He's like, well, I'm going to run. You should come with me. I said, you know, I think I, I think I am better off here. He had a great motorhome lined up, a Bluebird travel lodge, I believe, and and uh, rolled out west for for quite a while till he got his plan together with getting fake passports, getting identification, kind of laying the groundwork of where they were going to go. Alex was big into Harley Davidson. He'd been driving in a Harley up and down uh, Miami for, for a while. He really wanted to go to the Sturgis Bike Rally, the famous one in South Dakota that they have every summer. So he drives the crew up there, and he calls Scott Shirouse, his old buddy, from Sturgis. The last conversation we had, he goes, you know you might be on a witness stand someday testifying against me. He had multiple indictments against him, and it just became more and more apparent of how badly they wanted him. It was an emotional goodbye, and, you know, I love you and hope I don't ever see you again. Because if I saw him again, it means something bad happened. We actually left it like, look, we're going to, why don't you call? I'll be at this same payphone at 12 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. And I was there, and, and the phone never rang, and he was on his way. The police were after him, Jim Burke remembers. Alex wasn't anywhere around to grab, so we grabbed all of the, the defendants, I think there were approximately seven at that time, and each time we made an arrest, we would ask where Alex is, and they all say, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not talking to him anymore. So that's really when the first time that we really honed in on looking for Alex in 1991, of July. We knew he wasn't around anymore. This is Paul Pelletier, the federal prosecutor who led the DeCubis case in the courts. The DEA and the Marshal Service and Customs put a lot of law enforcement effort into attempting to locate him. 
we were often what I would say is a hot cup of coffee away from Alex. We would go to places where he either just was or had just left. And at some point in time, we learned that he had taken an RV with some of his co-conspirators, David Lemieux, Tommy O'Donnell, and Nikki Tristani, and were doing what we would call a trip across the country to exit the United States through Mexico. And that's one of the reasons why we couldn't find him, because he was constantly moving across the country in this RV. So Alex was getting his crew back together. Here's one of his crew, David Lemieux. When I finally got back hooked up with him was in San Diego. I had a passport. Tommy had a passport. Alex didn't have his. We were going to cross into Mexico. It was like an adventure was going to start. I don't know where the idea came from, but we rented a limo, threw everything in the limo, and shot down there and ended up on uh, a beach. We rented a limousine from a bachelor party place, I guess. (laughs) And uh, there was no questions asked. Well, it's really interesting about Alex. He's racing across the country. He's trying to slip over the border. He's managing his group of fugitives. And he's still coordinating a load. He has a yacht coming in through the Bahamas with 2,000 kilos on it, two tons of Colombian coke, and he's still coordinating everything. Alex was running that load for a guy named Jorge Henico, who was at a Barranquilla. Henico's family was politically connected. His brothers were in the Colombian Congress. But Jorge was the toughest of them all. Felix Chitiva, one of Alex's Colombian associates, explains. Okay, Jorge Henico, he was a big-time smuggler. He born in Papayal, Guajira. He, he became the worst guy in town. He killed little Jay, Julio Zuniga, to steal all his money. He became the Pablo Escobar from the coast. He used to bomb all the, the train rails so they can use his 100 trucks for, to transport coal from the, from the coal mines. He was into the politics. He was, he was everything. Jorge Henico and Alex were friends, as far as friends went in the trade. Yeah, Henico was a very sadistic guy. He used to show Alex pictures of guys that he had tortured. The first picture would be of the guy uh, all banged up, bloody, pleading for his life, looking into the lens. The next picture was this guy's lifeless body. It was almost like Henico was proud of this. But he was a big player, and Alex had to deal with him. And Alex is doing all he can to bring the 2,000 kilos into the country. While at the same time, he's also getting himself out of the country. So they make it to Mexico. They get down to Mexico City. They buy tickets to a, for a flight to, to Rio de Janeiro. That's their, their ultimate destination. That represents safety to them. So they board the plane. They're sitting on the plane in Mexico City. It's about ready to take off. And a bunch of cops bust onto the plane. It's it's over, right? Yeah. They're, they come running down the aisle, and uh, they stop short. They grab a different guy a couple rows ahead of them, totally unrelated. So the plane takes off, but this instance has given them a taste for this fugitive life that they're about to embark on. And here's David Lemieux again to tell us more. You're never, ever comfortable again. Some sound happens in the middle of the night, and the first thing you're thinking, they're coming through the doors. Here they come. You'd hear something, bang. You're out of bed. You're like, here they come. 
That's all you just kept thinking about the whole time. You were a lot more alert to everything. You were like always looking over your shoulder, always, you know, looking for signs that the end was coming. It's not a good way to live, I'll tell you that. All the same, Rio felt like salvation for David Lemieux. It felt like we were um, we were released from all of that pressure that we were we were under. You know, it was like, wow, this is this is it. We made it. All right, this is Brazil. They're not going to get us here. One of the hardest places to get you at. So we made it. Okay, now we got to start a new life. That was real hard because uh, you always kept thinking, all right, well, someday I'm going to have a life back there again. But then you'd start to think about it and you'd go, well, there is no way. There's no way. I always thought we, you know, we're either going to die in Brazil or who knew what was going to be the end. I didn't think we'd ever be walking on these grounds again, you know, as free men. So Alex's plan was set up shop in Rio. He'd arrange for the Coke in Colombia and then coordinate all the efforts from Rio. When they're down in Rio, they get set up, they get their bearings and they start hanging out at this place called the Lord Jim Pub in Ipanema. It's on the last street of Ipanema, a street called Rua Paul Redfern. That's really interesting. It is, it is, because as we know, I used to live in uh, Brazil, in, in Rio, and I lived on that same street, on that same block. I lived two doors down from the Lord Jim Pub, which is still there, still there, and I used to hang out there all the time. I was going to ask, did you ever go to the Lord Jim Pub? Yeah, I mean, it was it was my local. It was, I'd, I'd you know, grab a beer there on the way to heading out somewhere for the night. Was and, it like uh, a soccer bar? It's uh, it's an Irish pub, you know, guys throwing darts, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, the soccer game's on TV. And that was the place where, where Alex and his crew would hang out in Rio. And that's where they began their fugitive life. So, yeah, a, a, a weird coincidence. And they'd meet a curious character. David Lemieux recalls. Ronnie Biggs. It was a, a bar down there called the Lord Jim Pub that a lot of American, not a lot of Americans, but a lot of English-speaking people were, would go in there. So it was like a, a natural spot for us to go because, you know, we could talk. And I met this guy in there. He told me, he says, uh, you want to meet Ronnie Biggs? And I said, who's Ronnie Biggs? And he goes, come on, man, you got to know who Ronnie Biggs is, the great train robber. I said, sure, I'd love to meet him. He takes us one day out to uh, Santa Teresa. Ronnie Biggs had a house there. We sat there and drank with him and partied with him and hit it off pretty well. Pretty good old boy. Ronnie was a, a very likable chap. He was a bit player in the great train robbery. But because of the legend of him getting away and being on the run, living in Brazil for so long, and his legend just grew and grew, he was quite a character. British citizens would come down and they'd pay to have lunch with Ronnie Biggs and he'd give them a free t-shirt, I ate with Ronnie Biggs. Oh, he, he loved us. He thought uh, we were in the same boat, you know? So he, he, he knew without asking, he said, you guys, aren't here shrimp farming. I said, yeah, we're going to start a shrimp farm. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, he knew without being told what was going on. And he had a nice pool there. And we brought a couple of uh, the little chirpies from uh, Help Discotheque. We went and bought turkeys and everything, and he did all the cooking. And that was uh, Christmas of 1991. It was like a, a secret thing he knew. Ronnie could smell 
why we were there, you know, that we were in the same boat. We saw that he survived it, so we started thinking right away, maybe we better have a kid, you know, with some Brazilian woman down here, and then they'll never get us out of here. This contact with Ronnie Biggs, it ends up being more than just a curiosity for Alex and the guys, because one of Ronnie Biggs' friends clues them into the fact that cocaine in the UK is selling for $50,000 a kilo. In Miami, the prices had dropped significantly. Throughout the 80s, the cartels had flooded the market, but it was like the old days in England. So they hatch a plan. Here's David Lemieux. We were not going to be able to live down there, make a living, you know, live on the run like that. It's very expensive. So the hand was forced that there had to be another project. The guy that I'd met, Tim, who'd introduced me to Ronnie Biggs, told me, he said, uh, well, if we take one to England, you can get $50,000 a key for it over there. And I'm like, get away. You're, you're nuts. We didn't want to go back home. We didn't want to bring one back to the U.S. And we didn't really have a whole lot of other options. So we made the connections with him to sail it, you know, to go to England. Not thinking that it was really going to be that profitable, but he, he didn't lie. Plan was to airdrop. So we bought the boat, then we built the compartments. So we figured it would hold between the two of them 350 to 400 kilos. So we got the boat all ready and we're sailing around the Caribbean. The plan was to uh, catch the cocaine from the airplane, sail to Great Britain, sell it, put the money back on the boat, put it on a banana boat so we didn't have to sail it back, send it back to the Caribbean and and live again with money. I said, oh, we got, you know, a one in 10 chance of pulling this off. But I said, you know, we don't have many options. And then we catch up to David Lemieux out on the water. He's somewhere between Cuba and the Bahamas, somewhere in the Caribbean. And just like they've always done, he's waiting for the airdrop. He's waiting for the airplane. We finally hear the plane, and he's too high because he's afraid to come down because of the uh, weather. So I'm shining a spotlight on the sail so he can see the boat. I see the first bundle come out of the plane, and it's coming right at us. I said, oh, my God. I'm screaming at the boys. I said, look out. This guy's going to take the mast right off of this thing. thing just flew right over our head. That's it. We're heading to England. We're on our way now. It was like another adventure. It was pretty cool. The adventure just continues for these guys. David sails across the Atlantic, and on August 1st, 1992... He pulls into the Isle of Wight during a festive time of year called Cow's Week. Cow's Week is one of the world's largest sailing events. They have over a thousand sailboats show up. It's on the Isle of Wight where, uh, you know, most people, Americans would have heard from it. Jimi Hendrix, his last concert. That's why we wanted to arrive on that day because then we'd just be another white sailboat in the middle of uh, a thousand. I called from the Azores and got a slip. Turns out it was the closest one to the Royal Yacht Britannia, which the Queen and uh, the Prince and everything come down for cows. Prince Edward was on it at the time. And now through his contacts, David Lemieux starts selling the product. At the time, 
the kilo had dropped so much in Miami that a kilo of cocaine would only bring approximately 10,000. I set the price at uh, 23.5 to see how that would go, which would be the equivalent of $47,000 a kilo. They flew. They were like, you know, begging, how many you got? As small a country as it is, they, I think they liked their cocaine because it was amazing. Two, three hundred thousand a day. There's so much money coming in that David doesn't really know what to do with it. Eventually, he knows he's going to have to launder it. But for now, the main thing is to stash it somewhere. Here's David. I wanted to make sure some of our money was safe. So I went and looked at the facility. So he says, what do you want to rent? I said, well, one of them big boxes there. I got a bunch of camera equipment that uh, we're traveling all over Europe, and I don't want to lug it all with me. So he goes, all right, here, fill this out. The first name I think of is Christopher Collinsworth, the ex-Cincinnati Bengals wide receiver. And that's what I write out, Christopher Collinsworth. And so that's the name the box was under. I wonder what Chris Collinsworth... The Chris Collins. The real one. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think he would think of that? Yeah, I'm not, not sure. But the money that David put away, now it's secure under Chris Collinsworth's name. And now David, with Alex's help remotely, he has to figure out how to get the money out of the UK. And that's where it all falls apart. Which is really interesting because as an outsider, logically, you would think that the hardest part of any operation is, is actually getting the product into the country, you know, smuggling it over a border and then distributing it. But it turns out that moving the money that you you collect from the sales, the actual cash, that's also something that can trip you up. Well, that, that could be even tougher. Yeah. And in Colombia, one of Alex's contacts is unwittingly using an undercover agent to move the money. Bad news for David Lemieux. We'll let him tell the rest. This was the DEA agent that had been sucking in the whole Cali cartel and everything for the last two years. Felix had contacted the guy that, um, this Heidi Landgraf or whoever she was, the DEA agent that everybody was using, and said, my boys are in England, they need a money launderer. Do you have anybody over there? And she goes, of course I do. Yeah, I've got a great guy over there, he's the Lord. So the DEA is onto this operation from that point on. They know there's a guy over in the UK named Paul Jeffrey Carpenter, the name on David Lemieux's false passport, who's moving Colombian cocaine. And one day, David gets into the elevator in the London apartment building where he's living, and it's all over. Here's David. And the elevator door's closing, and just about closed, boom, this hand comes in. And the guy goes, uh, Paul Jeffrey Carpenter, uh, British Customs. You're under arrest for uh, drug smuggling, cocaine conspiracy. We ended up getting 16 years, served eight. Then we get taken out from there and rearrested for the extradition to Miami. The prosecutor was uh, Paul Pelletier. Happened to be in the courtroom when I got brought in for the first time to be arraigned in Miami. What a nice little smug look on the face. I got 20 on top. The events in the UK let the feds know that Alex was still operating. He was a high-level target for Paul Pelletier, the federal prosecutor working the case. Here's Paul. In terms of morale, we always believe we're going to get them. Um, It's just a matter of time. In this case, 
there was still a lot of work to be done because even though we realized he, he was a fugitive and outside the country, we wanted to continue to arrest and charge all of the people that we could prove to be both on the importation side and the distribution side of the organization. So we spent a lot of time doing that. In addition to continuously working to see what we could do to find and arrest Alex de Cubas. My experience had been that they all make mistakes in some way, either mistakes in that they piss somebody off or mistakes in the fact that they get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I knew that his days were numbered, but I was going to wait him out, and I waited him out. Well, this has got to be a blow for Alex to lose David, who's his right hand. It certainly was. His, uh, his lieutenant's in prison, and now something else comes up for Alex. What else is going because, on with Alex? Well, remember the load that he was managing that was coming in on behalf of Jorge Henico. While he was still trying to get out of America. Right. Henico's people call Alex. They say, we want you to come to Bogota, and we want to go over some particulars. And as far as Alex knew, the load had gotten in safely, the 2,000 kilos. That's what his contacts in Miami were telling him. But in reality, Alex had been betrayed. One of his crew showed up at the safe house where the 2,000 kilos were being held. The yacht captain is there keeping watch over the stash. This other guy shows up with a team of gunmen. They burst in. They attack the captain. They tie him up. They really go to town on this guy. They manage to get away with 800 kilos. Alex is talking to this guy on the phone, and he, this guy's telling him, hey, it all went smoothly. No problem. The 2,000 kilos came in just fine. So when Alex shows up in Bogota to meet with Jorge Henico, he's walking straight into a trap. This is Felix Chitiba, one of Alex's Colombian contacts. Jorge Henico sent his people to kidnap Alex in Bogota. They take him to a compound outside Bogota, situated on a cliff. It has a high wall around the property, and Henico is waiting for Alex in an office in his house. He's asking Alex what happened to the load. Alex doesn't know what he's talking about. Henico slams his fist down on the desk, and he says, You owe me $25 million, and you're not leaving until I get it. And that's the cocaine trafficking business for you. Yeah, one day you're rolling in millions of dollars, you're living outside of the rules of society, the next, your buddy's locked up for a long stretch, and you've been kidnapped. Alex's life is in danger, and there's no way out. Thank you for listening to the SC-featured podcast, Pin Kings. You can follow Pin Kings on Twitter, at ESPN Pin Kings. That's at ESPN Pin Kings. A preview of the next episode follows this message. Next on Pin Kings, episode 14, Back to Work. All of the major Colombian drug traffickers were basically controlled Colombia. Transportation, that's where the money was for us. We wanted to get Alex. He was a local boy, gone bad. Pablo Escobar, and he's into extortions, kidnapping, and whoever doesn't give him money from what he heard that he scored. They grab him, kill him, take everything from him. He was the kingpin in the United States of that organization from the perspective of, of my job, which is taking down the entire organization. You can't do that until you have him in jail. Don't miss an episode. You can listen and subscribe to the Pin Kings podcast in the ESPN app 
or download and listen on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts.